Yeah, well, it was really cool because we, we went up to Georgiana and Harvard, and then we actually bushwhacked another, I don't know, quarter mile, half mile beyond that. And we were really tempted to bushwhack over to Indian Head, which you can do. It's like a mile um, straight across open woods. And that's at like, I don't know, 2,000 feet or so. It was really cool. But I was getting a little gimpy at that point. Um, so we turned back and on the way down, we bushwhacked this route that we sometimes use um, on rescues for people that <laughs> end up in trouble up there. And uh, we found this huge football-sized chunk of chaga. So we spent the whole afternoon nice. driving around to different uh, holistic shops. <laughs> and Jimmy would go walking with this big chunk of chaga. He's like, would you guys want to buy this? <laughs> oh, really? Did, did anybody care? What, yeah, there was one place, it was on Peppercorn, I think, in Plymouth, that said, oh, you know, we would, but we're busy trying to pack up and move. We're moving locations. But uh, it was just a funny afternoon. He's always fun to hang out with. Broadcasting from the Woodpecker Studio in the great state of New Hampshire, welcome to the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast, where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Here are your hosts, Mike and Stomp. All right, Stomp. So uh, episode nine here, we've got a, a deep dive into a, a search and rescue. But uh, before we get into that, do you want to kick us off with a little bit of a, a drink and a hiking discussion? Oh, yeah. Sure thing. It's a, it's a funny story. My folks are moving in, so not permanently, just for a little while. So they, oh, they're boy, that's what they're telling you now. But <laughs> they'll yeah, start they, cooking dinner for you, and you'll say, oh, you, you guys can stay. It's really funny. So they, they spent the weekend up this weekend, and they brought a box of their, like, liquor stuff. So I sort of pilfered some of that stuff, and I made myself a little margarita with some tequila. Oh, hey, very a little, nice. Yeah, breaking very away nice. from the Pinot for a night. <laughs> what kind of tequila do you know? Um, I think it's Quavo. Oh, very nice. Yeah, I don't, I don't like tequila. To be honest with you, it's a little rough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I used to drink margaritas quite a bit, and now I sort of reserve those for vacation. You know, yeah, on a cruise ship or something. I'll, I'll have a margarita. How about you? Anything? I have. Um, I'm sticking with my my traditional beer here. So I have something from the Winter Hill Brewing Company called sun buzz so i'm sort of sticking with your theme of um warmer weather drinks which is which is good but it's pretty good and it's uh i've had a few drinks from winter hill brewing recently i think that the liquor store that's near my house must have a deal with them because they they're always stocked up with with winter hill so i'll uh i'll put a link in the show notes and if anybody wants this beer i would i would definitely recommend it hmm so you just got back from vacation right I did. I was How in was Florida. Um, yeah, Florida. I, I just, I didn't even attempt to hike this time. I think the last time I was in Florida, I hike, tried to get out. Like what? <laughs> well, I mean, they've got, uh, my in-laws are in Vero and it's not that far of a drive to get to the, the center of the state to get near the Florida trail. And I've tried to do a couple of hikes down there in the past, but it's just, there's no views. It's flat. It smells like shit everywhere. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the last time I went hiking, there was a trail that was like a foot and a half of water that you had to walk down for. Even It was just a couple of hundred feet, but all I could think about was like snakes and alligators, and I just, I was done. So I just spent time on the beach, and I watched the um, the rocket launch for uh, the SpaceX um, rocket. Yeah, I saw those cool. pictures, man. Those are really cool. Yeah, yeah. So that was something else. I've always wanted to do that, but um, I did. I did get out today. Matter of fact, I did a 15 mile loop in the Ossipee Range, hmm. and uh, I looped together uh, Mount Roberts, yeah, and then Faraway, which is it's a viewless peak over there. It's got like a um, antenna, yeah, on top of it. And then I went over to Mount Shaw, and then. Uh, Black Snout, I think, is the name of the peak, and then came back around. So it was a lot of mileage, but it wasn't a ton of elevation. And that Ossipee Range is awesome in the early um, springtime period because it's not that wet, mm -hmm. and the the carriage trails are really wide. So I think I was going like three miles an hour, four miles an hour through the whole thing. So it was a lot of miles, but it wasn't a ton of time. I think I was done in about four or five hours. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's a nice area. It must have been pretty warm because it was actually – Overcast and freezing up here, like 30 degrees up at Welch Dickey. 
Yeah, yeah. I was in short sleeve shirt for most of it. I did have to put on my my shell when I got on top of Shaw, just because it was very windy. But otherwise, it was it was a nice day. Mm, cool. What about you? You've been gimp gimping along, gimping around. <laughs> yes, I uh, I'm actually discharged from the doctor. Um, I saw him Wednesday, and I start work on Monday, which is cool. A little anxious about that, but uh, we'll see how it goes. And um, yeah, last weekend I did. Um, Georgiana and Harvard Falls um, with Jimmy Chaga. That's Jimmy's oh, nice. new trail name, by the way, Jimmy Chaga. <laughs> Jimmy always, so our friend Jimmy always has like a new trail name every time we go for a hike. He comes up with a new one for him and whoever he's hiking with. Yeah, well, it was really cool because we, we went up to Georgiana and Harvard, and then we actually bushwhacked another, I don't know, quarter mile, half mile beyond that. And we were really tempted to bushwhack over to Indian Head, which you can do. It's like a mile um, straight across open woods and that's at like I don't know 2,000 feet or so it was really cool but I was getting a little gimpy at that point um, so we turned back and on the way down we bushwhacked this route that we sometimes use um, on rescues for people that end up in trouble up there and uh, we found this huge football sized chunk of chaga so we spent the whole nice. afternoon driving around to different uh, holistic shops and Jimmy would go walking with his big chunk of chaga he's like would you guys want to buy this oh really did, <laughs> did anybody care well, yeah, there was one place, it was um, Peppercorn, I think, in Plymouth that said, oh, you know, we would, but we're busy trying to pack up and move. We're moving locations. But uh, it was just a funny afternoon. He's always fun to hang out with. Yeah. And we were with his son, too, of course. So it was a good time. But then... Um, Very cool. Yeah, just, um, what was it? Um, a couple days back now, I think it was Tuesday, I pushed myself up to the Dickey Ledges um, on the Welch Dickey Trail you know just using my hiking poles and stuff like that made it up without a problem which was cool and made it back down and uh guess what happened after that uh, i heard a rescue <laughs> can you believe it <laughs> yeah, yeah so we're gonna do a deep dive on the story so do you you want to just cover the rescue now yeah 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 really briefly um it was about four o'clock a call came in and there was a hiker and a companion i believe that um, went up the Welch Dickey Loop Trail. They were going counterclockwise, as most people generally do. And apparently on the way out of the call, on the steeper eastern side of Dickey, uh, she just hurt her leg. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, we had, you know, Pemi, Campton, and Waterville Valley, and um, got up there and packaged her and carried her out. I mean, Dickie's uh, actually a really nice trail to carry somebody out. It's pretty gentle. And uh, everybody made it up by about 7.45. It's that time of the year. I mean, more people are going to get out. And, you know, there'll be reckless situations where rescues will be needed. But, like, it, it usually breaks down about 50-50 between the shit happens and the the uh, the reckless behavior ones. So Yeah. But that's all we have on the books this week. For rescues, it's knock on wood. It's a little quiet. Let's dive into some White Mountains history, shall we? I hope they send him a bill. We often hear this after a search and rescue event where the victim is perceived to have behaved recklessly. Tonight, we're going to share a story about what happens when that bill is actually sent. We're going to go back in time to um, a rescue that happened in 2012 on Franconia Ridge. This rescue required upwards of 50 people to help bring an injured hiker down from extreme conditions. Normally, these stories end with a trip in an ambulance, a press release, and some follow-up from Fish and Game. But as you'll hear tonight, nothing about this particular rescue was normal. The events of September 18th, 2012 uh, began a three-year legal battle that remains the only case of its kind in New Hampshire to have gone to trial over hiker negligence and search and rescue reimbursement. Tonight, we're going to review the case of the New Hampshire Fishing Game Department versus Edward Bacon to find out what happens when a rescue results in a bill to the victim. So, Stomp, I think you probably have a little bit more detail about the, uh, the specifics of the, the hike. So I think we were going to start this off with an overview of, uh, you know, the hiking route and some of the details that, uh, that happened before the rescue was, uh, was started. Yeah, and just a little background. I mean, this case is public domain. There's 
tons of information, court records, media articles, and reports from all across the nation. So there's tons of information out there about it. This individual had a a plan for a five-day trip, and he was going to go up the Liberty Springs Trail, head across the Franconia Ridge, and end up at the Greenleaf Hut. And then from there, I'm not entirely sure where his final destination was. I, you know, I'm not sure. Maybe it was over at Galehead. I'm not sure. That's some information I could not locate. So who knows? But that was the idea. This this individual is from um, Northville, Michigan, uh, 59 years old at the time. And I guess he had hiked the area a few times in the past. And he just had it to do a nice five-day solo trip. Um, beginning again um, up on Liberty Springs. And uh, we have talked about those trails in the past. I believe that was episode one. Yeah, yeah. It's a uh, very busy area. And, you know, this was middle of September. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, prior to the foliage really changing. But, you know, you still get a lot of traffic in, in that area around September. Yeah. So he spent a day, I guess, getting up to the Liberty Springs tent site. From there, he just spent the night. When you read the information about this individual, I guess he had a lot of um, medical conditions, but namely his hip. One of his hips had a history of multiple dislocations. And according to the reports, he had experienced some dislocations even within the year leading up to this hike that he decided to do, which is pretty interesting. He walked with a couple canes not poles but actual canes like uh, walking canes really yeah yeah that's... so did he have a hip replacement like you you did or is it he would just frequently dislocate his hip yeah i'm pretty certain it was a full re- replacement like mine um, which is what sort of drew me into the story to begin with uh just that morbid curiosity about what it'd be like to go hiking with a hip and you know what the, what are the odds of it dislocating and he had the risk of a dislocation, but um, he was determined to go hiking for five days solo. I guess where he's from, um, Detroit, cold, sure, but uh, flat. And uh, I guess he was training by just doing small little 200-foot hills, gravelly lots and things like that. The court reports do indicate that he was trying to put some heavy weight on his back um, to just get in shape for this hike. Yeah, and I think that we see this a lot too, even just from people that are traveling up for a weekend hike, uh, you know, two, three hour drive, what ends up happening is that because you have limited amount of time to do a hike, this this can cause you to make poor decisions because, you know, if poor weather comes in or something like that, where normally you would want to turn around, you know, the, you're in a situation where you've committed to take these five days off of work or whatever your your life entails, and you know, you want to achieve whatever goal it is that you have set. So um, that will play into this one, I think, in the you know as we go along and give more details. Mm-hmm. So on the morning of the 18th, he's at Liberty Springs tent site at about 4,000 feet or so, 3,000. Yep. The caretaker at the site sees that he's moving really slowly and actually tells him, you know, you might want to reconsider doing this because uh, there's weather coming in. You know, you could get yourself stuck in a bad situation. Apparently, he was aware of the forecast. There was a forecast that was posted at the tent site. And according to documents, he had a discussion with the caretaker about the weather and um, other hikers as well that had been either passing or staying at the site. Apparently, for several days ahead of time, there was a call for pretty significant weather um, to hit that area, which is always a challenge when you're trying to get up over something like the Franconia Ridge. Yeah. What was the details of the weather? Was it wind or, or rain or snow or, or what What exactly were they looking at? I mean, it, the weather was fairly warm. It was forecast to be about 50 up on the ridge. But the rain itself it was forecast to be several inches. Um, and the wind was supposed to be as as high as 70 miles an hour sustained ahead of time. And they used Mount Washington Observatory information as well to confirm that but so you're heading into a situation where you have heavy heavy rain heavy winds your pace is extremely slow 
again, he just decided to continue on and uh, head up trail. So 59-year-old hiker using canes, a bad hip, going into difficult weather on Franconia Ridge. This is not sounding promising, Stomp. Yeah, right. And again, I mean, multiple medical conditions, but the worst of them was this hip that frequently dislocated. Got it. So he's leaving Liberty Springs tent site around 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning, even though the caretaker's warning him, you know, to be careful and maybe you might want to think about changing plans. Do you know, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't know what the deal is with the caretakers, if they're related to AMC or not, but like, do they have the ability to just sort of put their foot down and say like, you're not going forward? And oh, no. No, definitely no. not. No, they can make a suggestion and that's about it. Yeah, you can do whatever you want. You can <laughs> be as live, live free or die, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. it's a very stark choice. <laughs> yeah. And the choice is all yours. <laughs> yeah. So so he's on his way around seven thirty, eight o'clock, and then it's what? Like, it's about two miles before you get to like little haystack and, and on the, the ridge as, as we think of it. Right. So it's 1.8 miles okay. from the junction of Liberty Springs over to Little Haystack, which is the small sub-peak just south of uh, Mount Lincoln. And Mount Lincoln okay. is about 0.6 from Haystack. So you're mm-hmm. talking about fairly short distances, but um, Bacon's moving really slowly. So he, he finally gets to Haystack and he's continuing on. And the weather is starting to go south. There's information from weather data sites and road information um, that rain's starting to move in as early as you know mid morning, ten, ten thirty, that type of thing. Got it. What time? What time did he hit Haystack? He's traveled essentially, let's see, about two point six miles, and he's been moving at about half a mile an hour pace. So it's Got taken it. him many hours. It's it's one o'clock uh, when he starts to get himself in trouble. So. He's moving really slow. He's done 2.6. He has another 4.9 if he wants to make it over to the Greenleaf Hut. Nobody's really sure where he got injured. Apparently, he comes up to a rocky ledge that's about waist to shoulder high, and there's really no way around it. He has to get over it without injuring his hip, of course. So he decides to turn himself around completely backwards, apparently jumps up onto this little ledge and at that moment that's when he experiences either a fall or or something who knows ends up dislocating his hip and just lands on the ground and can't move and that's about 1 1 30 or so p.m so he can no longer move he's dislocated his hip he's in severe pain the weather is getting significantly worse. The rain's getting worse, and the winds are picking up. Got it. Any any other hikers around, or was it so bad that hikers were staying out of that area? Well, he passed a couple hikers earlier, somewhere probably in the area of uh, Little Haystack. Actually took a picture of them, uh, two females. I'm not sure what happened to them, but they may show up later in the story. There were only a couple, so there weren't too many people on trail. So I think most people stayed home knowing that the weather was coming in. Got it. So what happens at this point? He doesn't call 911. He's able to actually reach the Pinkham Notch AMC Center over by uh, Mount Washington. Is able to talk to staff and over multiple calls, apparently there was, there was such poor connection that he had to call back a number of times. They finally determined that he's somewhere on the ridge, per his information, between Lafayette and Mount Lincoln. Okay, so that's, according to him, that's what he told AMC. Got it. Well, that's that's interesting that he called AMC and not 911. So that makes me think maybe he, you know, did he have plans to, I think he probably had plans to stay at a hut. So maybe he had coordinated the trip through reservations with AMC or something. I don't know. Yeah, I would guess so. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, he was headed for Greenleaf Hut. Um, just below Lafayette. So I'm thinking that he probably had a place to stay there or at least was going to stop there. But um, that's um, that's who he called first. That's the information that he gave them, is that he was on the ridge in between those two peaks, unable to move, which of course sets the whole ball in motion. So what happened after that point, obviously Fishing Game got involved and they got that information from AMC and then a full uh, search and rescue was Put into action. Got it. So before we get into the details of the search and rescue, just to sort of 
break this down, you know, when I'm <laughs> I'm hearing this and I'm just thinking like, you know, this is somebody that's not local to the area. They've got a five-day trip scheduled. I mean, my guess from the sound of it is that he was probably going to be jumping from hot to hot. Maybe he was going to do Greenleaf and then Galehead and then Zealand and then be done with, with his trip or something. But, you mm-hmm. know, somebody that's not in good shape, moving very slowly, uh, this is just, you know, and, and with nobody else to hike with, it just doesn't sound like, you know, there's a lot of good judgment going on here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Apparently he had you know, everything in his pack. He had a sleeping bag. He had rain gear. Um, There is report in some of the court documents that before this dislocation happened, he had one slip, which may indicate that the the trail was slippery. And he lost his tent on that slip, according to him initially. Got it. So, you know, he did have his sleeping bag still, but he lost his tent. So part of his shelter was gone by the time he dislocated his hip. He was able to to crawl into that sleeping bag, I guess, just to keep himself warm. Because you're talking heavy wind, 70, 80 mile an hour winds, which were increasing beyond that forecast. The wind chill is probably in the 20s, mid, mid to low 20s. So the risk of hypothermia, even though it's 50 degrees, is really severe. And you're soaking yeah. wet. Yeah, because the, the the rain is the big factor there. But it's good that at least he had the sleeping bag, so he could, um, mm-hmm. you know, stay a little bit warm there. So, right, you know, we've he's he's called AMC. So now this takes us to the rescue has to start here. So what 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 entails after um, after the AMC gets the call and they've got to start the rescue? Well, in this case, they staged at the Trailhead parking, which is across from. Lafayette Campground, and that's the access point for both Falling Waters Trail and Old Bridal Path. And the plan was for PEMI and um, fishing game officers and actually AMC folks to head up Old Bridal Path to Greenleaf Trail and head up to the ridge and head over between the two peaks to get them. So that was the original plan. And the wind is just picking up. It's getting faster and faster up there, right? Yeah. Well, from what I understand, the wind was hitting about 100 miles an hour with 125 gusts at the hut itself. So you can only imagine the weather up on the ridge. Absolutely life-threatening. Now, are the, the... The people that they send up on a rescue like that are they even capable of moving at a across the ridge at a hundred with hundred mile an hour winds? You know, it 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 happened. It happened on this case. They actually had people go across towards Bacon, which is absolutely amazing. I mean, I don't know if you've been in winds like this, but I think the the heaviest wind I've ever been in is maybe sixty, and that was on Auto Road. I um I had a little trip where I was trying to find the old abandoned um, carriage road that used to go up. Yeah, auto. I remember that. Yeah, it was really neat, but it was so windy. It was just unbelievable, unbelievable. You had to crouch, almost kneeling on the ground to get through this wind. So that was about sixty, maybe even less. Uh, have you been in anything harder than that? I think it's almost the exact scenario that you talk about. Is I was running the auto road for a training run on, Memor- on a Memorial Day weekend a couple of years ago, and I got hit mm-hmm. with, you know, I say 60, 70 mile an hour winds. It could be, you know, 30, 40. I think I've read a couple of reports where people grossly exaggerate wind speed, but mm-hmm. it was enough that I said, you know, around mile six or so, I said, I got to get down. It's just too much. I was trying to come across like a flat area and I just got hit with so much wind I said I don't want to go across this and have to come back if, if the wind's picking up but yeah it, it wasn't 100 miles an hour it was enough to scare me at 60 miles an hour oh yeah it's it's amazing um, I can't even imagine I mean if you're talking 100 mile an hour winds carrying heavy packs and you know, a rescue litter, that type of stuff. I mean, that's just absolutely amazing. So they're staging at the parking lot and then their, their initial plan then is to go up old bridal how many people are we talking about here uh about 14 yeah yeah about 14 went up and over which is a absolutely huge crew but i mean from what we've talked about you need multiples of six people to carry a litter they needed at least two crews uh, or at minimum one just to carry him any amount at all so again they think he's between lincoln and lafayette so the quickest way up was 
the way that they chose, Greenleaf Hut up to Lincoln. The kicker is that sometime when this crew is heading up towards Lafayette, they find out that he's not there. He's that he's further south, south of Mount Lincoln, somewhere in between Little Haystack and Mount Lincoln. So now you have all your resources going up to try to go over the ridge in 100, 100 mile an hour winds to find somebody who isn't even there. So what do you do now? Absolutely crazy. Well, so I'm assuming they had to send another team of falling waters, which they would have done anyway, right? Until they made contact with him. Yeah. Apparently at that point, they had to call um, other people. They, you know, obviously fishing game officers, PEMI supplied some more and um, mountain rescue services. Uh, did I just say that? <laughs> I, I think the tequila. I think the tequila yeah. is starting to hit me. Um, yeah. No, so yeah, you're right. So you have one team heading up and another team going up falling waters. And I don't think they get started until about 6.30 at night. So you have two teams approaching Bacon from two different directions. But the first team, you have to remember, is heading across the ridge in probably some of the worst, most life-threatening weather that any person could withstand honestly absolutely amazing and th- his location it's it's kind of crazy but he was pretty much in the same area that the uh, the two gentlemen that were the subject of the last traverse by Ty were you know he he was pretty close to where they they were located they or well, they they took shelter right uh, that's what i understand i mean i think i think the Ty Gagney book they they were cl- actually closer to the actual proper summit of Little Haystack, whereas this feller, it looks like he may have been at what they call the gargoyles, which is that okay, uh, yeah. that really rocky outcropping of rocks that you have to sort of scramble up and over to get through. Um, it. It, just a guess. Who knows? Not sure. But um, it's the only place I can think of where there's a ledge that you actually have to climb up. And if I remember correctly, doing it myself, it was it was probably about waist high. So the rescue team they 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 thought that they had pretty solid info to make the decision to go up Old Bridal, and that he was going to be on the the Lafayette side of Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Turns out he wasn't. They're dealing with eighty to hundred mile an hour winds now, and they've got to make a decision whether or not they just wait for the team to make their way up Falling Waters, or if they go across the ridge. Mm-hmm. Who who gets to make that decision whether they go across the ridge? That's a call for command. I believe it was Jim Nealon that was in command um, at the time. But yeah, he was in charge. He was a, a new lieutenant too at the time. Do you know, do they like, will they do a sanity check? Like, uh, I'm obviously like in the parking lot, they say like, you know, if you're not comfortable, no judgment, uh, you know, you can turn around. But like, will they do another sanity check as the weather starts getting more um dicey where they'll stop before they get they start going up above tree line to say like hey everybody is is everybody okay is everybody still willing to keep going or do they just push onward yeah they're always watching out for the members yeah in okay. this case i mean everybody knew how dangerous this was going to be if this was a mission today we would always break down what was happening and what to expect and tell people you know this is your time to turn back you don't have to be a hero you never roped into anything it's always personal risk you you assume the risk that you're willing to take. In light of that, again, it's like you had a team of 14 that said, yeah, let's go. <laughs> let's go. We're going up to Lafayette, and we're going to walk over that ridge to get to this guy. So you have 14 people braving that weather, and um, it, it's incredible. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. Do you know, um, based on the weather reports or, or the, the, the public um – information was visibility a factor or did they have enough visibility going across you know i don't know i'm not really sure i think the biggest problem was that it was getting late i think it was it was ferocious rain which dampens visibility lots of you know cloud cover fog but their biggest problem was that it was september and they don't reach him until late that evening so you're you're dealing with dark conditions up on the ridge in that kind of wind. I mean, just amazing. Um, so I don't think it was your traditional whiteout where you just would have no clue where, where you were going left or right. Um, I, I do think they saw where they were going and could see, you know, 20 feet ahead or so with their headlamps. So 80, 100 mile an hour winds. They're, they're on the ridge. It's getting dark. 14 volunteer or 14 men or, or men and women are going across the ridge for 
for this rescue? Mm-hmm. Um, what what happens? Well, this first team, they make it over to Mr. Bacon by about 6.30 at night. You know, you're still talking about 20-degree weather with the wind chill. The wind was getting worse. The rain was getting worse. And at that point, they did have the rescue litter, so they started to pack him in to the litter. The court documents, they don't tell you his weight, but they do say that he was overweight, which you could, I don't know what that means. I mean, I, I can't put a number to it, but when you're dealing with a rescue litter and very few people to carry the litter, that's a challenge. You know, the heavy, heavier somebody is, the fewer people there are to carry the litter. That's absolutely uh, draining and, and a very vigorous challenge. Um, so, yeah, it's dark. It's 630. They get him packaged. and He's a bigger bigger man. We don't know what the weight is, but um, there's 14 of them. So that means that they basically have like two rotations of people that can carry. That's it for the moment. But again, you have the second team that is coming up Falling Waters. And the plan is that at some point, those two teams will intersect and be able to increase the, the litter rotation amongst themselves. So that, that will help out tremendously. Yep. So they start moving at about 7.30 at night. And it takes about, I think about three hours or so for them to get from his location on the ridge to tree line just below Little Haystack. Wow. So, I mean, that's amazing. They're moving so slowly because, again, just two rotations of people and his weight, I would assume. Yeah. They're moving really slowly. So, um, you know, they're probably carrying him, I don't know, 50 yards, maybe less, and then stopping or swapping people out. So Three hours is insane because I just think of, like, the times that we've gone up there and, like, you, the typical hiker that goes on the ridge, like, you pop up on Little Haystack and it's a short hike up to Haystack and then another short hike over to Lincoln. I mean, it's it's 0.6 miles, but it's usually, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes to get over there. So three hours to carry somebody. It's crazy. That Yeah, that short distance. And I mean, I, I'm guessing that the weather was a factor as well, just for, oh, safe, course, yeah. just for safety, but uh, that's, that's a really slow pace. So I'm not 100% sure where the two teams meet. I mean, the court documents really don't go into that type of thing. But they do at some point, and they are faced with descending the Falling Waters Trail. There are several water crossings. Basically, the primary route is called Dry Brook. So the team is going to have to cross over several crossings with this individual in the litter in high water. You're talking about crossing with the water up to your knees, and in some places probably up to your waist, and it's moving fast. So the risk to the rescuers and the patient is just exponentially increased by that risk itself. Now, one thing that's interesting to think about, why didn't they go the other way? Because I think that was the, the original plan. They wanted to go up Old Bridal Path to Lafayette, then head down towards Lincoln, hopefully find him maybe closer to Lafayette if, if things worked out for him. And then from there, they were going to go back. So that means they would have had to have carried him back up Lafayette and then down towards the hut. So I think that was the original plan. So that would have been, even though you'd have to go back across the ridge, the theory is is that they get him back to the hut and maybe he can spend the evening in the hut and wait wait out the weather. Yeah, that would be my, my theory on that one. But now, since the information has changed, and by the way, there's no information anywhere in these court documents about what actually caused the change or what gave command the new information that told them that he wasn't in the original location that he had told AMC. So whatever came in put him too far away for that first plan to, to, to be acted upon. So it's almost like pick your poison. I mean... There's no way they could have carried him at that. If it's taking you three hours to go, you know, 0.5 miles, (laughs) I mean, there's no way you're going to get him back over the ridge, over two peaks in that weather with 100-mile-an-hour winds. So they had no choice but to go down falling waters. And um, here's the other side thing. I mean, just in in our experience, when you have winds that high, the trees are going to be falling. You're talking about blowdowns. So you have flooded streams, brook crossings, and blowdowns. So everybody's at tremendous risk here. So this one's a mess. It's an absolute mess. Absolutely. 
I think there were a few that were injured, according to the documents. And we, we can list these docs on the um, podcast notes. The show notes, yeah. Absolutely. There's a, there's a ton of information, and it's, it's really fascinating. But yeah, there were a few injuries, but thankfully that's all that happened because the, the risk was just monumental uh, for something worse. Got it. So they're making their way down. Do you know, um, so they hit tree line. Do you have any idea what time it was when they hit tree line? I think that was about 2,100 hours, which would be... Nine o'clock, yeah. Yeah, about nine o'clock at night, they hit tree line. And from there, they just continue to make their way down, eventually getting to the last dry brook crossing. When you do some research about what they experience for the water that night... Some of the measurements are actually 6,000 cubic uh, feet per second. If you're talking 800 being the point where you're unable to walk across a river on rocks, what, what would 6,000 be? I mean, it's just absolutely huge, huge difference. So they must have faced, you know, at least knee-high water, if not higher. Yeah, and we talked about this in a previous episode where it's one of those things where you want to add this to your you know just as important as a weather search is this this water discharge um search like you can see like i'm I'm looking at a graph from from that date and it's like a it's just basically like a straight um it actually looks like the game the uh the the GameStop stock price a few weeks ago <laughs> the wall street bets team went after it but mm-hmm. it goes straight <laughs> up and um, this is if you're in if you're worried about rainy conditions, like you should be looking at uh, these water gauge readings before you go out on a hike. And this, you know, it's pretty clear from from the data on this date that like they, they got absolutely slammed with an event that um, that spiked the, uh, the the water flow from the, the PEMI, at least, which is a good indicator that everywhere is pretty much going to be running fast. Now, what what was the last time that we had talked about when they met, when they reached Treeline? What was that time? Was that 9 o'clock at night? I think you said, uh, yeah, 9 o'clock at night they reached Treeline, and then they've got a long long slog out of there. Okay, so Falling Waters Trail, if I recall, is about 4 miles, give or take? Yep. Okay, so it's 9 o'clock at night. They're at Treeline. They have to make their way down. They finally get to the lowest water crossing on dry brook at three in the morning <laughs> wow <laughs> absolutely amazing so that's how long it took them to get down to the last crossing and i can't even imagine what that last one was like but you know it could have been waist high for all i know if not deeper in uh, are they if they're having that much difficulty are they putting the word out to like you know all hands on deck get as many people up the trail as you can to help with this Oh, sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Again, at this point, you're talking probably, what, how many people, like 50 people responded to this? Yeah, so you had the original 14, and then another crew, and then people must have just kept coming. I mean, yeah, absolutely. They must have done multiple calls, and uh, people responded. I mean, 50 is a massive number. They must have been walking up trail, up falling waters most of the night, meeting up with the team, which is a blessing. Like I said, you just get so burnt out when you're carrying a heavier load and uh in weather like that especially treacherous conditions i mean falling waters when you get past the first crossing you have probably a good quarter mile to half a mile of really steep wet water crossings waterfalls it's nasty you have to set up rope belays it's incredibly challenging to get somebody in good conditions down that trail it's it's absolutely a whole other story uh when it's bad weather so must be miserable though, like a, a lot of standing around and like soaking wet weather with a heavy pack. Mm. You know, if you're not on the on the the litter, it must be like uh, just you know tough to even stay warm. Well, that's the other thing about rain and wind. I mean, the rain's going to find its way through your clothing. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, you're going to be soaked. I mean, geez, uh, unbelievable. So it's three in the morning. They have a choice either cross this last crossing or head down a bootleg trail and get to the highway generally today what we do when we get to that point is take the bootleg trail just so that we don't have to cross that crossing uh, but in this case they got back to the highway at about 3 30 in the morning and um, just about almost sunrise and from there he was taken off to the hospital 
for um, additional workup. So that's a heck of a rescue. Um, I, I'm just sort of floored. I mean, I read this story and I'm just amazed. Um, there were so many things that crossed my mind. You know, I, I, so many questions about you know, all those decision points, like when he could have said, eh, this is probably isn't a good idea. I better turn back or, you know, maybe I should hike with somebody else or maybe the, I'll wait for the weather to improve. There's just so many things that make this story fascinating. Yeah. I also wonder, like, if the temperatures dropped a little bit more, even with his sleeping bag, you know, would that could have spelled disaster, but it mm. was... It does sound like it was a little bit warmer, um, which may have helped. But, you know, hey, kudos to him for being at least prepared enough that he could wait out a rescue team. And that's really the the name of the game is, you know, worst case scenario happens, even though this, you know, this person wasn't probably making the best judgment calls. He at least had a sleeping bag to get into where it it bought him enough time to 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 wait out the rescue team getting there. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Why don't you get into the um, the aftermath here? So he's off in the hospital, and then, you know, what happens here that they they start, you know, looking at the, you know, the events and 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 breaking it down, and eventually they they do end up sending him a bill. So can you talk a little bit about you know the the aftermath here? Apparently, he was sent a bill on the sixteenth of November, a couple months after the incident. And uh, Fishing Game was looking for $9,186.38. And they were trying to just recoup their costs for the, um, the time for the officers. So they, they do an investigation. I'm assuming they have like you know, a discussion with him. They'll probably talk to the caretaker at the, at the Liberty Springs tent site or whatever. So eventually they just decide like, okay, whatever actions he did was was reckless to the point where we need to send him a bill like how do they how do they come up with the bill like what what did they use to determine that that nine thousand plus dollar bill well that incorporates the time it takes for all the officers their hourly rate and overtime and mileage according to the docs so they'll be billed based upon those things so you're talking about you know a dozen fishing game officers over X amount of hours, they are allowed as an agency to, to bill for the reasonable costs that are incurred because of somebody's negligence. So this is something that's discussed at the agency level. And from the agency, they have to send um, a memo to the attorney general of the state to actually get approval for the sending of the bill to an individual. So, you know, from fishing game, it starts there, but it goes higher up to the AG, and um, from there they'll send it out to somebody. So that's yeah, a pretty so that's the, a that's a wake up call. That's a shock for anybody. I mean, nine thousand dollars, like you. Yeah, that's not cheap. So basically, like what they're saying is that if there's twelve or fifteen officers on this rescue, and you know nine of them or ten of them were supposed to be off shift at six o'clock at night, and they ended up having to work until three in the morning they just tally up that that Mm -hmm. overtime that they bill and then just say like hey you know victim you're you were negligent you're gonna you're gonna have to reimburse the state for that cost right exactly so yeah fishing game has the authority under rsa 206 if anybody's interested in looking this up it's rsa 206 26-bb and it says basically any person determined by the fishing game department to have acted negligently in requiring a search and rescue shall be liable to the department for the reasonable cost of the department's expenses for such search and rescue response. Got it. So if this is me, um, I'm going to look at that $9,000 bill and I'm going to obviously be bummed out about it. But like if I look myself in the mirror and I say, you know what, I really didn't plan this out the way I should have. And I'm really appreciative of, you know, this team coming out and carrying me off the Franconia Ridge in a, in a deadly situation and basically saving my life. I'm going to say, okay, well, I'm going to cut that check and, and say thank you. But that, that, that didn't happen here. 
<laughs> Apparently not. I guess I'm a little, I, mean, I don't know, maybe I'm a little naive, but I, I would assume that like 99% of the, you know, the population would do that, but I, I guess <sighs> that's a steep. That's not. a steep bill. It is. Yeah. I mean, I can think back to my younger days when I would get a parking ticket or a speeding ticket and a couple hundred bucks. Yes, yes, I did speed a couple times. That's a lot of cash, and I can only imagine if I got a bill for nine thousand yeah, dollars. I, yeah, yeah. I mean, a part of me would say I have to at least try to fight this, even if I'm <laughs> if I'm guilty. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So fight it, he did. So what? So he gets the bill, and then I'm assuming that they give him like. Um, you know, 60 days or whatever, or 180 days to pay or call us and work out a payment plan or whatever. Yep. But he he decides that he's going to, um, dis- and I'm assuming there's some mechanism where he can say like, okay, I'm going to dispute this fine, like very similar to what you would see in a, a, a speeding ticket, right? Right, right. Yeah, you have the option to um, work with Fishing Game before it goes anywhere and work out a payment plan. You can do all that stuff. But um, apparently Bacon just went directly to the trial court and uh, this went to trial. Got it. So it winds its way through the court system. Nothing moves quickly, of course. So what is his main argument on why he shouldn't be held, you know, he, that he was not neglig- negligent in this case? So just to review a few of the um, closing arguments that each side presented at court, you have um, Bacon's attorney and you have an attorney for Fishing Game. It's impossible to cover it all here. I mean, if you want to dive into the documents and read them, that's great. But we'll just do a few. I've already found him guilty, by the way. <laughs> Did you? Oh. Yeah, he's negligent, in my opinion. <laughs> shame? So it's a shame category. Yeah, yeah, it's a shame category. <laughs> So the the big points were his fitness, his preparedness and training, the weather overall, and then the infamous jump and fall, which led to his dislocation. So Bacon's attorney argued that his training back in Northville, Michigan, you know, carrying 40 pounds up these small little 200-foot hills was sufficient to match what was going to be faced up on Franconia Ridge. You know, Bacon also provided doctor notes, physical therapy notes, um, saying that he was cleared to do whatever. And that's really funny. I just got a clearance note from my doc, so I could go back to work. Yeah, I mean, my experience with this is that, you know, you, you can shop around to get a doctor probably to give you a note about anything. So Yeah, it's true. How, you know, take it for what it is. Probably not much. Now, on the other side, you have Fishing Games Council basically saying, hey, listen, this guy dislocated his hip just by stepping on a garden hose. So how the heck was he supposed to climb Franconia Ridge and not expect that to happen um, with the boulders and the terrain that's up there, especially in bad weather? Yeah, I guess the one, the, the one thing about the weather argument to me is, you know, if there's, there's one thing I would sort of give some leeway to it is the weather just because you can always argue that um, you know weather can be much worse than than forecasted or sometimes better than forecasted so there's there's a enough unpredictability around weather forecasts that even you know within a couple hours on the mountains you know you could potentially convince a jury to say like look you know it's it's a weather forecast everybody's gotten burnt on those in the past yeah, absolutely. And and they do focus in on um, the fact that earlier in the morning, he slipped on some slick gravel and lost his tent. So, you know, the train had to be somewhat treacherous. He should have known that that would have been a factor, especially if he knew the forecast. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Does it matter if Bacon... Are we looking at uh, foreseeability from Bacon's perspective or from a reasonable person's perspective? Because I, I obviously Bacon feels like he's being reasonable the entire time, but I'm assuming from a legal perspective, um, you've got to basically pose that question to the jurors or the judge to say, you know, was this overall reasonable? Because when when you hear that argument from from the fishing game lawyers, it's it's pretty damning and you know, it is it's pretty much sums it up on what 
what this case comes down to is that this is just a, you know, it sounds like an out of shape uh, person with a bad hip and probably not packed efficiently, not aware of the terrain. And he's just asking for trouble. It sounds like. Yeah. I mean, they look at the totality of circumstances, all the facts. So would a reasonable hiker in his shoes have done what he did? Yeah. Yeah. I think for, for me, um, you know, when I, when I look at this entire story, what I think of is that, you know, this is, uh, you know, in my, my work life, I, I deal with uh, disputes a fair amount of time. And what I've come to sort of look at is, you know, if you're dealing with somebody that I would call a sort of a high conflict personality type, typically, uh, you know, they're not going to be willing to accept a lot of sort of personal responsibility for their actions. Um, they do tend to sort of think in terms of all or nothing, um, you know, and then you, 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 you'll typically see some extreme behaviors that, you know, the, the normal person wouldn't do. And I think that there's a lot of elements to this story that sort of make me think like, okay, this is, you know, a, a high conflict personality because I think didn't, even after the Supreme Court ruled, I think he filed a motion to, to have them reconsider it, which was denied pretty quickly, right? That was actually after the district court level. They, and that was, that was after yeah, the that was denied so that's, right off the bat. That's how we got to the Supreme Court. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. I mean, for me, and I would say probably 99% of the population after reading the details of the story and, you know, the way that it's, it's broken down, you would typically, you know, react in a way where you would just say, I'm going to pay this bill. I'm going to send thank you notes to the, the fish and game officers and the volunteer organizations that helped me. And I'm going to move on with my life and, and, and use this as a lesson for how I will approach things in the future. You know, maybe he decides to get a guide service next time, or maybe he decides to try to connect with some friends, or he tries to look at some less challenging hikes. Like you, you can achieve what you're looking to achieve in ways that are safe versus the, this sort of extreme approach that, that he's taken. So it's a very interesting case. Yeah. Just to finish up on this, I want to add a couple little things here. Uh, so the, on the, th- the 30th of um, April, 2015, the Supreme Court did come back and rule against him for the $9,334. And they quote, quote, we stated, they, oh, sorry, and they stated, we agree with the trial court's conclusions that the defendant's injury was foreseeable and directly caused his need to be rescued. Um, the ruling found that Bacon had testified to a different version of events at trial, specifically regarding the awareness of surrounding awareness surrounding the weather forecast, the actual weather on trail, and that he had not fallen as he had told Lieutenant Neeland while hospitalized. Um, after the fact, he was interviewed um, September 18th, and he, he stated, I have no recollection of saying that I fell. It's kind of not fair. I was up there for six hours with a dislocated hip in pain. Who knows what I said? By the time I got to the emergency room, I was totally exhausted, and they were pumping painkillers into me. (laughs) Interesting. And then here's another great quote. Quote, the only thing I would change if I could have was maybe not go up that day at all and to talk someone into walking with me. Yeah. So you're talking three years to drag this through the legal system in New Hampshire, I'm assuming that the cost for a lawyer to stay on this case for three years is going to be like way more than the fine itself. So that's oh, why yeah. I, I absolutely, that's, you know, I can only imagine he probably got a lawyer that was super happy to take this on and drag it out, you know, through, through yeah. three years. I can't imagine. I mean, yeah, it's incredible. That's the trade-off. I mean, it's so expensive for an attorney. Got it. So eventually this makes its way to the Supreme Court of New Hampshire, right? Yeah, it sure does. Yeah, and that's the final thing, uh, the final step of this saga. The Supreme Court decision is a seven-page document, which is pretty pretty cool. It goes over some of the really pinpoint um, points of information. And they begin on the first few pages about um, just the actual search and rescue itself. You know, it talks about things like the wind. It talks about how 
Sergeant Brad Morse, who was one of the responders, testified that the winds were among the worst he had ever experienced in that part of Franconia Ridge, and he was repeatedly blown down to the ground. And, you know, it does talk about the two people that he had passed in the morning. And the Supreme Court makes note that, yeah, it's a picture of two people, and Bacon had used this image to say, hey, look, the weather was great. But the court noticed right off the bat that when you look closer at the picture, you see two people with full rain gear on, covering their heads. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so the, the weather, you know, Bacon's arguments apparently just didn't hold water. Got it. It talks about the waist-high rock that he experienced. And, um, you know, they talk about how Morse found him on the ground with his hip dislocated. And Morse testifies that it would probably be impossible to not um, avoid the, the position that would dislocate that hip in the terrain that's found up on the ridge. So just really common sense arguments. It goes into an interesting area too here. Lieutenant Neeland visited Bacon in the hospital proximate to the incident, and Bacon sort of changes his story. I guess what he said was that he misread the forecast to mean 30 to 40 mile an hour winds with gusts up to 70, and uh, apparently Bacon changes his story and claims that he misread it because he lost his glasses. Long story short, he ultimately changes his, his story um, on several points, which does not look good in front of the court. Yeah, and regardless of, you know, 30, 40 mile an hour winds or 70 mile an hour winds, if you're, if you're, you're taking, you know, hours to get from Liberty Springs campsite up to, or up to um, you know, Little Haystack with, with canes, it's, it's, you know, it's just not not a safe safe thing to be doing yeah at the close of the the hearing they award fishing game nine thousand dollars three hundred thirty four and eighty six cents and apparently that's just for interest and other costs so ultimately um mr bacon was found negligent um for the search and rescue that occurred on the 18th of september in the year of our lord 2012 <laughs> so Negligence is interesting. I mean, when a court looks at negligence, they're looking at the t totality of circumstances. It's not just looking at the weather. It's not just, you know, your fitness. You're looking at everything, every factor, the fitness, um, you know, your medical history and things like that. Focusing in on the hip dislocation, the court document actually says that he dislocated his hip by stepping on um, a garden hose with, within the year before. Like within the year before this hike, yeah. he dislocated it simply by stepping on a garden hose. So, I mean, do you go hiking on the Franconia Ridge knowing that you can dislocate your hip that easily? I mean, that's just that's something that a court would look at to determine was this person acting reasonably? Would other hikers have put themselves into the situation that Bacon put himself into? Yeah, and that's the reasonable yeah. person standard. It's sort of this uh, the hypothetical hiker that's always reasonable, always does the right thing, but um, you know the court just didn't buy it. Yeah, and it's so it's so hard. Like I try to put myself in a situation where, like you know, I love hiking. I try to go out as much as I can. If I was injured, like I know, like you, you know, you're probably pushing it too much with your hip as it is anyway. You know, I would be yeah. probably doing the same thing. So I can imagine, you know, I don't know Mr. Bacon's background, but if he was an active person that had, you know, over the course of the last whatever amount of years found that this hip injury was prohibiting him from doing the things that he loved, you know, I could certainly see myself saying like, you know, I'm going to doctors be damned, common sense be damned. I'm going to do what I want to do to live my life in a mm. way that, um, you know, is going to keep me happy, but that butts up against common sense sometimes. And, you know, when you're putting 50 people's lives or, or safety at risk for your, um, you know, your own personal interest, then it, it gets, it gets to be a situation where the court's got to look at that and say, like, does that, does his desire for normalcy outweigh the 
you know, the, the behavior that, that required 50 people to come up and do a rescue. Mm. Well, looking at it legally, I mean, you know, the factors that you have to prove, one of them is duty. So in this case, Bacon had a legal duty owed to Fish and Game because of that uh, legislation. You have a duty to not put yourself in a situation that's going to provoke a rescue. And because of that, that's what got him in trouble, you know, regardless of, you know, your, your ambitions and your motivations. When it comes to the law, Fishing Game had every right to, you know, pursue the damages that uh, they incurred. Got it. So at the end of the day, would you say that the ruling was a, um, a strong rebuke of his argument or, you know, what, what's the, what's your, what's the impression on the decision? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not an attorney. Yeah. <laughs> I only play one on TV. Nice. I don't know. I mean, as a as a hiker, I think that um, you know, with his the thing that stands out to me the most is that he had so many hip dislocations leading up to this. I think that's what sort of sways the needle against him, in my opinion. You know, if you're going to go hiking with the risk of dislocation, then why are you going to do it up on the ridge in bad weather? without help, without somebody with you. I mean, it just seems like, um, you know, common sense was not applied here. Got it. And then, um, so this was the first case that, that looked at this, uh, this this particular law. So it sounds like, you know, moving forward, fishing game had, um, you know, it has the ability to, to charge hikers. Do you know, like, has, has there been other cases where they've sent bills? I'm assuming there has been. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, every year they, they send out probably you know, half a dozen to a dozen or so every single year. So yeah, the people are getting billed, but they're just not going to court. I mean, his is the only one that actually went to court to this day. It's been, it'll be 10 years next September, and this is the only case. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah. I'm sure most of them get settled out or just get on a payment plan or that type of thing. Yeah, well, it sounds like it was a wild rescue Um <laughs> And then, uh, you know, Mr. Bacon sounds like he is an interesting gentleman to, you know, to, to fight this. And, you know, he gave it a shot. But uh, I'm sure the lawyer was happy to pocket the money that uh, that he had to pay to, to be represented <laughs> over the course of three years. <laughs> yeah, it was the, probably much more than the fine. So <laughs> Yeah, I would think. I mean, geez, you never know. Yeah. Oh, it just uh, um, can we talk about one other thing before we stop? Yeah. At the time this ruling came out, Hike Safe cards did not exist okay so it's an interesting side angle on this would bacon have been found negligent if he had had a hike safe card on him back in 2012 it's an interesting thing yeah so the hike safe program is basically a program where you can voluntarily purchase a hike safe card for yourself or there's a there's a family option as well and the idea is that it will uh, you know, if, if you do need to have a rescue come out, uh, you will not be billed for it. But I do think that there's a caveat in there that says mm-hmm. even with a hike safe card, if you're found to be negligent or acting recklessly, then mm-hmm. um, you can still be billed. But I do wonder, would they have a little, you know, do they have a little bit more sympathy for folks that or at least trying proactive around saying like, okay, you know, I recognize that I'm, I'm doing risky behavior and I want to help participate and fund um, some of this search and rescue. So I don't know. I, yeah, I'm not aware of any cases where somebody has had a rescue where they've had a hike safe card and they've been charged, mm-hmm. but it's, it's possible. I don't know. Right. Yeah. I mean, just to, to read the um, actual statement, it says, the holder of a hike safe card would only be liable for the cost of a rescue if the rescue was due to more serious, reckless, or intentional conduct. So, I mean, that's that's where it gets into legal mumbo jumbo, and that's where the courts would have to work that out. But you know, what is serious recklessness and what is intentional conduct? I mean, I don't. I mean, in this case, I don't think Bacon was intentionally, you know, trying to dislocate his hip to provoke a rescue, but. Was it reckless? Yeah, it's a good argument. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, what I've read about this whole thing is like, I think that the guy was, you know, way out of his element. Um, and I have, you know, no 
no hesitation that uh, that he should have been billed for this one. But you know, we do hear it all the time when when these rescues happen. Everybody chimes in on social media, or you know, there's always a sentiment to say like, send them the bill. So we wanted to do this episode to say like, okay, this is an actual case where a bill was sent. And, you know, this is the aftermath. So this was a, um, I think you call it a, a case of first impressions, which is, mm. which basically just means that this is the first time that a court has heard um, an argument around this particular law. So the court definitely um, found in favor of Fish and Games a, a right to, to bill people. So it's a, it's a pretty interesting rescue and it's an interesting court case. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Any other thoughts, Stomp? Oh, I think that's good. I think that's as far as we can take it with the uh, information that we have to us. But uh, again, we'll um, put all this up in the show notes and um, check it out. It's a really interesting read. Yeah, yeah. We'll uh, we'll put all of the links on the show notes, and uh, we'll try to put some pictures. I got a I got a good picture of Stomp going across the ridge into a uh, a real foggy um, view of Mount Lincoln. So we'll include that in the. Uh, the show notes as well. It looks like a pretty epic photo. That's a neat place too, because that's probably where he was, somewhere in that yeah, exactly. location. Cool. All right. Well, it was good. Uh, good episode. Good. Good story about a, a rescue, and we'll do more deep dives on on similar rescues in the future. But uh, let's call this a wrap. All right. Until next time. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered on today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information on slasserpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until next time, on behalf of Mike and Stomp, get out there and crush some peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fish and game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Nealon, New Hampshire Fish and Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? It seems to me the most common is being unprepared, and I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all.